Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and nothing says true crime like a serial killer, but how about the world's first ever female serial killer? So most serial killers who are female fall into two categories, poisoners like in arsenic and old lace, or women who kill alongside their husbands and partners. But in the case of Eileen Wuornos, she didn't fall into either of those categories. Instead, she employed methods and brutality that made her more similar to male serial killers. The difference in modus operandi makes her one of the most notable female serial killers of the 21st century. So who is Eileen Wuornos? I was a hitchhiking hooker running into trouble. I'd shoot, shoot the guy if I ran into trouble, physical trouble. The cops knew it. When the physical trouble came along, let, him, let her clean the streets. So Wuornos was interviewed one day before her execution in 2002. And she was certifiable and suitable for framing. She was apparently nuts, but... They did a psychiatric exam on her the day before, and three separate psychiatrists said that she understood what execution was and why she was being executed. Therefore, they could go ahead with the lethal injection in 2002. That audio was taken from a documentary, Life and Death of a Serial Killer. It was an interview done by Nick Broomfield, who really was poking the bear there in her final hours of life. Uh, Wuornos, he said, you know, you killed seven men. Um, She told this guy, Nick Broomfield, that, hey, look, I wasn't a professional serial killer. The cops knew who I was after Richard Mallory died. I left prints everywhere and they covered it up and let me kill the rest of those guys to turn me into a serial killer. I know they did because I was no professional serial killer or anything. I'm a murderer or whatever you want to call it, you know. So Eileen Wuornos admitted to shooting seven men while hitchhiking between 1989 and 1990. So she killed seven men in one year. And the media frenzy around her touted her as the first female serial killer, but history shows that's not true. There's plenty of other female serial killers on record before Eileen, and even a few big cases featuring female killers who were coming to light around the same time. But Eileen Wuornos really became infamous thanks to Hollywood and a certain movie called Monster. So Eileen Wuornos was born February 29th, so that's a leap year, in 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. So what's really interesting about that is I'm from Rochester, Michigan. Madonna is from Rochester, Michigan. And Eileen Wuornos is from Rochester, Michigan. Some strong women there. I actually went to the same high school that Madonna went to, Adams High School. Eileen went to Troy High School. These are all suburbs of Detroit. And Madonna was born in Bay City, but she and I dated brothers in the same family. They were sons of a doctor, Dr. Howell. He was a vascular surgeon who later in life really wanted to be an oceanographer. But anyway, Madonna was 18 and she was leaving Scott Howell's house. And his mom came out after her and said, Madonna, where are you going? She goes, I'm, I'm going to New York. And she, Mrs. Howell goes, do you know anybody in New York? And Madonna said, nope, see ya. And that was that. She became Madonna after that. Pretty cool. But Eileen Wuornos was born a couple years before Madonna and myself in Rochester, Michigan. In fact, her ashes ended up going back to Rochester, Michigan. That's where they are interred. So Eileen Wuornos, again, born February 29th, 1956 in Rochester. And by all accounts, she had a really rough childhood. It was like, it was horrifying. 
Her father hanged himself in prison in 1969, so she would have been like 13, while serving a sentence for child molestation. She and her brother Keith, who she allegedly had sexual relations with, were dumped on her grandparents by her mom, and her grandmother was said to have been an alcoholic. Her grandfather violent, controlling, and allegedly raped her, and she became pregnant at 14. So just months after giving birth to the baby, followed closely by the death of her grandmother, Eiling dropped out of school, and at 15, her grandfather kicked her out of the house, which Eiling left to support herself through prostitution and live in the nearby woods. The baby, by the way, had been given up for adoption I really don't know where that child ended up. Somewhere Eileen Wernos has a son who may still be running around. So Eileen really did not understand what unconditional love was. She never had a functioning, non-dysfunctional relationship with anybody. And much of her adult life was spent hitchhiking and engaging in sex work to survive. She was arrested multiple times during the 60s and the 70s for assault, disorderly conduct, and other charges. She had just tremendous anger inside of her. She would go off at people in the store if they just looked at her funny. Uh, And she encountered a small window of peace, though, when she settled in Florida. She actually met a wealthy yachtsman named Louis Fell. He picked her up off the side of the road she was like well let's get busy and he's like no no he was intrigued by her and he eventually asked her to marry him in 1976 so i mean this guy's got money she had she could have turned her life totally around but she still had that empty hole inside of her and she just could not live a normal life she had so much anger So the relationship lasted nine weeks. So Locke or Fate or whatever was smiling on Eileen and she kicked it right in the teeth. But soon it appeared that the only thing that changed for Eileen Wernos in marriage was her name. So despite the peaceful and comfortable life with this man, she was unable to recognize goodness. She continued to frequent local bars, drink heavily, and managed to be charged with assault, spending time behind bars. Eileen actually beat her own husband about the head and neck with his own cane several times. So he was forced to request a restraining order against his violent new bride and proceed to have their nine-week-old marriage annulled. Just makes you wonder what would have happened if she was able to assimilate into a normal life, but the making of a sociopath started when she was so young. And it was during that period of time that Eileen's brother, Keith, remember the one that she had sexual intercourse with, actually died from esophageal cancer. And to her surprise, Eileen learned that she was the beneficiary of a $10,000 life insurance policy on Keith. So, So both interesting and disappointing to note that Eileen was unable to grasp the benefits of two distinct opportunities, to change her destructive lifestyle to something with dignity and pride and decency. Her marriage was over quickly. The $10,000 squandered foolishly. Eileen's wild spin downward was in full force. So in 1986, she finally found a person with whom she could have her best and most rewarding relationship. And it was with another woman. She was at a biker bar in Florida when she met her girlfriend, 
Her name was Tyra Moore. This was at a Daytona Beach biker bar, and they had a relationship that lasted until her capture in 1990. They became inseparable, and here's what Tyra told Biography.com. She was in there alone. I was in there alone. We started a conversation, and she went home with me that night. I don't know that she was gay. I think maybe she turned herself that way just to see if that way of life would work for her. So it lasted for a good four years. Eileen called 24-year-old Tyra her wife, but it was a rough life because it was very transient. And Eileen would provide for Tyra. And when it, she didn't want to lose her, she began to commit murders in the final year there in 1989. So she killed seven men in one year. And on December 13, 1989, the body of 51-year-old Richard Mallory was discovered in a junkyard. And as the weeks went on, the bodies of five more men were discovered scattered around Florida. And police believed they were dealing with a serial killer. Now, the victims were 51-year-old Richard Mallory, who was found in the junkyard, 43-year-old David Spears, 40-year-old Charles Karskadon, Peter Sims, who was 65, Troy Burgess, who was 50, and then 56-year-old Charles Humphrey. Walter Antonio was 62 as well. So... After she first shot and killed Richard Mallory and she was able to rob him and get some money and therefore take care of Tyra, she then proceeded to pick up the men by hitchhiking and then she would shoot them multiple times with a 22 caliber revolver. And her motives for the murders are really unclear. Was it to rob them of their car and their money so that she could take care of her girlfriend? Or was it in self-defense as she had claimed that they had either sexually assaulted her or attempted to, and that she had killed them in self-defense. Eileen would later recant the claims that she killed the men in self-defense, except for Richard Mallory. And she said that the murders had been robberies, but she hadn't wanted to leave witnesses, so she killed them. And she would later double back to the self-defense story in interviews, and her motives remain really unclear to this day. Police eventually connected Eileen Warnos to the murder of Peter Sims, whose body was never found, through a palm print they discovered inside his crashed car. She then was arrested in a biker bar called The Last Resort, believe it or not, ironically enough, on January 9, 1991. And they tracked Tyra Moore down to Scranton, Pennsylvania the next day. And it was her testimony that cracked the case to avoid being charged as an accessory to Wernos's murders. Moore struck a deal with police and elicited a confession from Eileen over the phone on January 16, 1991. Wernos took full responsibility for the murders, but testified that she had been raped and tortured by Richard Mallory and killed him in self-defense. And Mallory had previously served a long prison sentence for sexual assault, but this information was not made evident during the trial. That's why Eileen felt like she was railroaded by the courts and by men. Despite her claims, she was found guilty of first-degree murder of Richard Mallory, January 27, 1992, and she was sentenced to death. In the subsequent months, she pled guilty to the other five murders and received the death penalty for each, and she was never charged for the murder of Peter Sims, but admitted to his murder in court. At her sentencing, psychiatrists for the defense state that she was mentally unstable and diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, but apparently she wasn't crazy enough to get her off death row and take the needle out of her arm. Questions about her mental health persisted right up until her execution. This is, again, part of the interview she gave the day before she was put to death. 
I'm okay. I'm okay. God is going to be there. Jesus Christ is going to be there. All the angels and everything. And, you know, whatever, whatever's on the beyond, I think it's going to be more like Star Trek beaming me up into a space vehicle, man. Then I move on, recolonize to another planet or whatever. But it's whatever's a beyond, I know it's going to be good because I didn't do anything as wrong as they said. I did the right thing. And I saved a lot of people's butts from getting hurt and raped and killed, too. So though her sanity was questioned, Wernos was executed by lethal injection in 2002. In addition to documentaries, books, and an opera, her story was depicted in the 2003 film Monster, for which Charlize Theron won the Best Actress Oscar. And the cops and the system, a raped woman got executed. It was used for books and movies and shit. I got a big finger in all your faces, thanks a lot. You're an inhumane bunch of living bastards and bitches and you're going to get your asses nuked in the end and pretty soon is coming so werno spent a decade on death row and she eventually opted to fire her appeals lawyers who were working for a stay of execution but a court-appointed attorney was concerned about the comments that she made that suggested she was profoundly disconnected from reality as you can hear in those sound bites. And in 2002, Florida Governor Jeb Bush lifted a temporary stay of execution after the three psychiatrists deemed Eileen Wernos mentally competent to understand the death penalty and the reasons for its implementation. So she was executed by lethal injection on the morning of October 9th, 2002. And as I said, her cremated remains were buried in her town of birth, Rochester, Michigan. I'm okay. I'm okay. God is going to be there. Jesus Christ is going to be there. All the angels and everything. So whether or not on October 9th, 2002, the final day of life for Eileen Carol Pittman Warnos, angels and God and Jesus showed up, we'll never know. But it was a life without chance, void of hope, lacking love. From the moment she entered the world on that fateful day, leap year, February 29th, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan. So I've come up with this alternate full rigor theme. It's actually the piano theme from Rosemary's Baby. That's me humming in the background. <laughs> yeah, so in the movie, it's uh, Mia Farrow humming. Anyway. I'm playing this music because I wanted to tell you about the legend of the Bloody Bucket Bridge in the town of Wachula, Florida. It dates back to around the Civil War, and allegedly, at the time, a recently freed enslaved person, so it would be a female slave, she became a midwife. You know, remember in the movie Gone with the Wind, I don't know nothing about birth and no baby. Well, apparently this woman knew how to birth babies. Well... Sort of. She acted as the local midwife and she apparently would deliver a healthy baby and then immediately smother the baby after birth and tell the families that the baby was stillborn. So this is midwifery at its finest. Then, as the legend would have it, she would carry the deceased babies in a bucket of birthing blood and fluids to a bridge and then dump the bucket in the water, and then bury the remains around the bridge. So that bridge is still there today. You can go there. It's kind of creepy. So this woman, 
she and her husband seemed to fit right into the neighborhood nicely, except for the fact that she was secretly smothering some of the babies as she delivered them. And she would tell the family it was stillborn and then sneak off with the tiny corpse. Ooh. And she would carry the dead babies in the buckets of blood and birthing fluids then to the now notorious bridge. And then she would dispose of the bloody buckets in the water and then bury the bodies along the bank beneath the bridge. And some say she'd stolen those innocent lives because she had her own children taken from her when she was a slave. Others say it was her insane way of helping those she felt had too many children already and couldn't possibly afford more. Wow. The Grim Reaper. As the number of stillbirths during her deliveries rose, people then started to get suspicious or superstitious and stopped using her as a midwife. And this only worsened her mental state. She went stark raving mad, rambling on and on about being haunted by the spirits of dead babies. Perhaps her conscience had finally caught up with her, but either way, she spent the rest of her life wandering the Florida swamps, hearing the cries of babies that she had murdered. The story does go on to say that she began to see the bucket fill up with blood all on its own, over and over, and only she could see it, and she could be seen carrying her bucket down to the bridge to dump its contents into the river. Then one day, she simply lost her footing, fell into the river, and drowned, is what they say. And they say the river ran red with her blood that day and for several days following her death. And according to the legend, now if you dare to venture out to the Bloody Bucket Bridge on the night of a full moon, you'll see the river runs red with blood to this day. In fact, some witnesses have heard ghostly babies crying nearby or the sound of struggling and splashing in the river. However, some do claim that this story is a work of fiction and the name Bloody Bucket Bridge comes from the fact that there was a bar nearby in the 1930s and 40s that was called the Bloody Bucket. Look at you! You have a baby! In a bar! Now I've got three more at home! This one's still on the tent, so I can cart him anywhere. <laughs> and there you have it. But there's another story about the devil's chair. So I thought I would revisit the Rosemary's Baby theme. So there's a place in Florida called Casadaga or Casadega, and it's a small unincorporated community located in Volusia County, and it's just north of Deltona. And it's especially known for having a lot of psychics and mediums, and has consequently been named the psychic capital of the world. Now, Casadega is a Seneca Native American word, and it means water beneath the rocks. The town fancies itself as the psychic capital of the world. Plenty of spiritualists, mesmerists, paranormal enthusiasts live in the town. And it's intended to be a ghostly location because its founder, George Colby, was a spiritualist medium originally from Pike, New York. And he decided to form the town after meeting the spirit of a Native American named Seneca during a seance in Iowa. So the devil's chair stands out because it's in a cemetery near Lake Helen. And it's a small brick bench nestled between two gravestones. There are other such chairs throughout the United States. Cemeteries in the 19th century began erecting them in order to make visitors more comfortable so you can go and cop a squat and visit your relatives, your dead relatives, by sitting in the devil's chair. Well, Casadega's devil's chair is known to be popular with 
old scratch who will appear next to you if you sit in the chair long enough. So who the hell is Old Scratch or Mr. Scratch? It's the nickname or pseudonym for the devil. Ooh, the name likely comes from Middle English Scrat, the name of a demon or goblin derived from Old Norse Scrat. Old Scratch. Arr. So another story says that if you leave a full can of beer on the bench at dusk, it'll be empty the next morning. The weird thing, though, is that it's empty and unopened, and some homeless guy will be wandering around drunk. So in the 70s, since the 70s, legend trippers, otherwise known as bored teenagers, have regularly dared each other to sit in the devil's chair. And apparently this happens so much that the cemetery is regularly locked up at night with dire warnings posted all around the perimeter. But all of the security hasn't stopped Floridians and others from hanging out by the devil's chair and scaring themselves silly. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up full rigor. This episode probably is not going to do much to help our tourism in the state of Florida. But don't be afraid. Come to the Sunshine State. <laughs> All right, enough. That wraps up Full Rigor. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. With Black Friday savings at the Home Depot, you can get top brand laundry sets with the latest tech to tackle any mess you might face this holiday, like automatic fabric and load size detection for spills of any size, from cookies and milk on your favorite holiday sweater, to the toddler of the house discovering just how fun cranberry sauce can be. Make more magic this holiday season. Let your new appliances handle the mess. Shop Black Friday savings and get up to 30% off, plus instantly save up to $750 on select LG laundry sets at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Offer valid November 2nd through 30th. U.S. only. See store or online for details.